Francesca, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and talking with us today. Can you start by introducing yourself to everyone listening? Hi, hello. My name is Francesca Trotman. Uh, I run a marine conservation organisation called Love the Oceans and I'm a Southampton alumni. Um, what did you study when you were in Southampton? I did. I actually came in on the marine biology with oceanography um, bachelor's and then I switched during my degree programme to the integrated marine biology master's. And is that something that you always wanted to do? Like, did you always know, I want to study this, I want to work in this area, or is that something you kind of fell into? Um, I definitely was obsessed with the ocean from a young age. Um, so my mum took me to the London Aquarium for my eighth birthday, and I just became obsessed with sharks. I was a bit of a weird teenager. Um, so... Um, yeah, I definitely knew that I wanted to do something underwater with my life. My second passion was music. So it was kind of a toss up for me between music and, well, something underwater. I don't think I'd like actively defined it as marine biology in my mind. And then when it came down to it, I just chose um, to do something underwater. And yeah, I didn't really look too much about it. I knew that Southampton was a very good university for marine biology and I knew that marine biology was biology but underwater so I figured it would be a good place to start and it was so I don't regret it at all. <laughs> and so when you're doing your degree is that when you kind of figured out a bit more like oh I want to special specialise in this specific area or was it kind of trial and error once you'd graduated? I think because I'd been obsessed with sharks, I kind of knew roughly that I was interested in like marine vertebrates. I think with gaining knowledge about a subject means that you kind of begin to appreciate different aspects that you just didn't know about before. And like 18 year old me just thought, you know, sharks were cool. And that was pretty much the extent of <laughs> extent of it. Um, but now these days, I'm more interested in um, their role in the ecosystem and what that means for food security. Um, so I think it was something that I definitely grew into and definitely had a couple of wobbles. Like I thought I was interested in whales for a while. Um, turns out not. Um, and um, then kind of I always just came back to sharks and shark fisheries. So actually like what their absence in the ecosystem means rather than the actual like morphology of a shark itself um so I definitely like grew more into that role and I started the organization while I was in my last year of uni at Southampton um and I'd gone to Mozambique where my organization is based in my second year of university so and then that's what I did my master's on so it definitely um evolved and, and I did my master's on shark fisheries in Mozambique so I I, I definitely my area of interest evolved while I was at Southampton and then throughout my kind of like professional career after that it's kind of diversified into different aspects within fisheries but I would definitely say like the intersection between kind of sharks their importance in the ecosystem how that relates to food security and what that means for humans um, and like the future for our community in Mozambique and food security in the area is definitely like that interface between humans and the ocean is where the crux of what I find kind of most interesting. And now I'm doing a remote PhD at Newcastle University, kind of following through on that love and publishing some papers basically about it. Wow, that there's so much I want to ask you about what you've just said. But first of all, I'm so curious, why sharks are not whales? 
I don't know. I just, I think you just, some stuff really interests you. Just like, I don't know what it is in like your brain, but something tickles your brain in a way that makes you go, oh, I quite like this. And everyone has like so, so many different loves in their life. And whales, I just discovered that I really like them on a kind of artificial level. Um, but as soon as I delved below um, into like the more depth of like their song and like the wavelengths of their song and understanding communication, whilst it sounds cool, like when it came down to it and I was analyzing data, I was just like, I'm just kind of not really interested in the output of this. I think I find um, actionable and like applied science so interesting. Uh, and I'm not saying at all that like <laughs> whale stuff isn't actionable, but for me with my work, fisheries kind of made sense in terms of like looking at food security and actionable conservation stuff on the ground with the community to increase food security and like increase shark presence in the area. So I think that's really where I started to like work out. Yeah. But I really liked looking at whales, playing with whales and listening to whales. But past that, it wasn't, it just wasn't my love. And I'm going to ask you to basically summarise all your study and work and everything that you do into a really bite-sized bit, which is probably going to be really annoying for you because I'm sure it's massively complex. But for non-marine biologists like me, what is kind of the crux of, you know, you've talked about like, the shark ecosystem and how that affects humans like in a nutshell what is that what is the kind of work that you're doing and and how does it affect us so the organization's mission is to establish a marine protected area and that's kind of an umbrella term that catches like a lot of different stuff and initially when I started it as I said I was focused on the shark stuff but I began to have an appreciation for um, all the kind of different aspects that comes into successful conservation and marine conservation in an area and stopping shark finning or shark fishing is just like one aspect of it. There's so many different parts. And so I would say that we are an organization that employs something called holistic conservation. So basically it means that you identify an environmental issue and then approach it from like loads of different angles. So we approach it from both kind of the ecological science side of things so we look at lots of different aspects that could be impacting different environmental factors that can affect food security um, and also like resilience for the community going forward with climate change and things like that happening in the environment and then I would say we also approach it from the community side so we do a lot of outreach um, with the overarching mission of establishing the marine protected area. So we do like coral research to understand what state the corals are in. And unfortunately, they're less healthy than they should be. And corals are a really important nursery ground for commercially important for the babies of the commercially important fish species that people rely on to eat. So without them, there's a massive problem for food security. Um, and we know that we have from that research an imbalance between your herbivores and your carnivores in the area. So your herbivores eat algae and eats diseased coral and things like that and keeps that coral healthy. And there's virtually no herbivores left and the carnivores predate on them. And the carnivores are also the species that a lot of humans like to eat. So that's like your tuna and your barracuda, those kind of meaty fish that people enjoy and also provide a lot of protein. And so if we can switch fishing pressure, for instance, from herbivores, which we found with our fisheries research are being targeted, 
um, to carnivores, you could potentially restore that balance in the ecosystem. Um, and so we have a sustainable fishing project and that sustainable fishing project is about switching that fishing gear over. But a lot of that is about human behavior and change um, and how to create change and how to transition people over. And a lot of our fishermen are illiterate and didn't go to school and, or finish school extremely early and have no knowledge base around biology and conservation and ecosystems. So there's a whole kind of ocean literacy piece that comes along with that. So you can see how things get really complicated really quickly. And so many different aspects because we also have like a gender equity program because no women are involved in the ocean space. And when you kind of track that back, and a lot of my job is just asking the question why repeatedly, basically, um, because when you track that, track that back, you're basically looking at um, girls are not getting access to menstrual management products. And therefore, they are skipping school when they're on their periods. They are not receiving any education around contraception. And in our community, having sex before you're married is um, fine, but getting pregnant out of wedlock is not fine. You have to get married if you get pregnant. And so girls are having sex at a young age with no education around contraception, no access to contraception. They then have to get married and that's really their career path has ended. So illiteracy rates for women in our area are 75%. That means girls are just not getting the opportunity to pursue any kind of career. They become financially dependent on their husbands. And that means they don't have any kind of life options. They don't have the options to learn to swim they don't have the option to get a job they don't have any of that kind of capacity to do that and so then we have our gender equity project which is all about trying to change that cycle just just breaking that cycle um and some women you know you can you know run a home and that's like a per perfectly respectable um lifestyle but some women don't want to do that they want to opt for a career so we have like our aquaculture project, for instance, which is about trying to increase food security through um, an alternate protein, so mussels and oysters, really. But also traditionally, women are the ones that will harvest mussels because they grow on that on those rocks that aren't ever quite covered by the ocean. They're always kind of um, splashed against, but not covered. Um, and so we are harvesting those babies and then growing them in the water. So these women are learning to swim, harvesting these mussels, selling them themselves, and you're creating economic independence for these women so they have more options. Um, and so, and that's really important because then that means that there's role models for women in the industry to be able to move into ocean spaces and you're kind of breaking this whole kind of rhetoric as well. So there's so many different aspects that you have to consider when you think about like successful conservation and what successful conservation look like and empowering women, for example, is like a well-known fact that when you empower women, you can change an entire community, create better access, improve education, healthcare, so many different aspects. And that all impacts how heavily a family relies on the ocean for food and financial income. So you can protect the ocean through this kind of empowerment of communities so it becomes like very complex very quick and I know that's not a nutshell at all um, but that was me attempting to um, do it in a nutshell <laughs> no that's fine I, I probably asked too much to summarize all of that because like you say it's holistic and it's all interwoven and very complicated but it sounds so interesting and you've kind of already segued in nicely to obviously this episode is about celebrating women and girls in science and 
like you've touched upon there, there's a lot of gender equity that you do within your job as an organisation. How have you found it personally, obviously, like setting up an organisation and like working in your space? How has that been for you as a woman? Have you faced boundaries? Have you had positive experiences? What's that been like? I would say it's been a mixed bag. (laughs) So I think that women have this ability to create networks of other women um, in a really lovely way. So I, I would say that my network that I've made of women who work in similar spaces has been invaluable for me and that's like a big recommendation I'd I'd say to any um girl or woman looking to you know go into this space um allies are everything um I would say that I've been told three billion times that I will never be able to do what I do (laughs) so just ignore the haters and keep going (laughs) and usually they're old white men that will tell you that so just ignore that um uh, I have a very good ability to just like not think about a problem um, or if someone tells me tells me that I can't do it I'll just be like okay that's your opinion bye um, so I find it like spurs yeah. me on in a weird way I find like the more t- someone tells me I can't do something I'm stubborn and I want to do it even yeah, more. Yeah I mean it can get a little bit heavy when it's someone you respect that says that but you just need to kind of have that blind faith in your own ability um and it's difficult because I think a lot of women are told all the time in many different aspects of their life not just professionally that they can't do something but you've just got to try and use it for fire rather than you know putting you down and I would say that in marine biology it's kind of said that the marine biology industry is majority female which is correct about 75% of the industry is female but if you look at the power structure it is the lower rungs of the power structure that are female and once you get to management and ownership level of NGO space and general organization space within this sector and in academia it's it's a lot of old white men and I think this is something that the world is waking up to and kind of thinking that they need to change um, and what I found is running an organization, a marine conservation organization as a woman, A, there aren't many other women who run marine conservation organizations, which means that that network becomes really like lovely, to be honest, because you meet another woman and you're like, we're going to be friends because there's so few of us. Um, so uh, you immediately kind of become friends. But also what's happened as an organization is that we tend to attract other women. So our organization is quite female dominated. I think other women see a woman running an organization and say like, you know, this must be a safer space. Um, so I think that's been um, an unexpected and nice kind of input. Um, I would say it has held me back in terms of, I sat with my team the other day and said like, do you think we would have achieved more and face less uh, barriers if I was man? my team like was so quick to be like yep um so I think um also culturally in Mozambique it's a very different culture to the UK I'm a white woman so that I'm seen as like an exception to a rule um and different so then uh having black women in our team has been a really important thing as well to break that kind of stigma and still provide those role models for women um because I don't really I'm not a role model essentially because of my skin color for our local community girls and women. Um, so having Mozambican women in our team has been really important. Um, and 
I would say that being a woman means that you basically just have to yell louder than a lot of your male counterparts and you kind of get used to that it does mean that you're potentially not taken seriously like I've been told that I just have a theory degree and you know that I don't know anything about what I'm talking about because this dude has like years of experience in the bush which I don't really understand why having years of experience in the bush would give you any knowledge about the ocean but sure um <laughs> and things like that but that's just um something that you have to yeah again ignore and kind of continue your journey I was watching something the other day someone was talking about and it's something I'd never thought about before but I found really interesting and I'd be interested to get your take on it is there was a woman talking about how there's kind of a similar thing to white flight but happening with gender flight in career spaces where if a uh, it's great that more women are coming into more traditionally male dominated spaces but then men like feel threatened and leave and then the um that space becomes like devalued almost like nursing for example used to be very male dominated now it's predominantly more female dominated but we've also kind of undervalued it as a society like nursing is seen as less important than doctors even though that they they do loads and arguably more important day to day but because it's female dominated it's become less than same as like teachers and you know child care it's like oh it's female dominated so it's it's less important because women are doing it and she was talking actually specifically about biology and how I know marine biology is different thing but sort of similar how like biology is seen as one of the easier quote-unquote sciences and that actually that might be a lot to do with the fact that it's female dominated whereas like physics and uh, chemistry are more male dominated so it's taken more seriously I don't know if that's something that you've experienced with your job you kind of touched upon you being a woman and in, in that space and not being taken so seriously I don't know if you feel similarly I can't really speak to it because like I feel like I haven't been party to those conversations as a woman you're not like party to a conversation where men feel that they can safely say that you know they disrespect an industry because you know women run it um but um I would say that conservation and marine biology generally has always been perceived as kind of less important. I mean, the charity sector generally, if you look at how we've structured our value, for instance, like I saw a thing the other day where this guy shared on Facebook the um, salaries of some of the biggest NGOs in the world, some of the biggest charities in the world. It was like Oxfam, UNESCO. They were um, six figure salaries. But what this person was saying was like oh well when you donate money to charity you're just donating money to this person's paycheck and what they have failed to understand is that that person who runs that charity is running a massive organization humongous and they've taken a paycheck massive pay massive sorry pay cut um probably earning less than a third of what they would earn if they did the exact same thing in the private sector and for some reason in our society, we are absolutely happy paying an oil exec millions to exploit our planet. And we don't have an issue with that. We're like, yeah, sure, take my money. Like, it's all good. You continue killing this planet. But the moment someone is doing good, they're expected to do it for free. Like, what is that about? How did society break that bad that we mm. are thinking that people should be working for free? And the conservation industry is a kind of 
a case study of that because not only is it largely charity dominated it's also doing this thing which is saving the world which is perceived as like doing a good thing and, and I think only recently in the last like 10 years I would say since we've started talking about plastics and now climate change are we even beginning to consider that actually it's kind of important and we're gonna die if we don't do something about it and pre that no one cared about the environment and now people are slowly beginning to wake up and there is slightly more money reaching trickling down to the conservation sector but I would say by and large we're still viewing the entire sector in a negative light as a non-essential part of the world and it's mind-blowing that we do that yeah I think that's really well said and like you say it's it's so much more complicated than just oh you're donating to a salary because like you say that person is doing the work of the charity and, and doing good and it's yeah very much more complex than that um I wanted to ask you about how you found setting up the organization like you mentioned that you set it up in your final year of university which is so early and that's mind-blowing to me because I think what I was doing in my third year and I was not doing anything as great as that so how was that like why did you decide to set up the organization what was the process of setting that up and what was your experience like so my friends and I have a joke kind of running joke where we question whether something we do is badass or naive <laughs> because sometimes people are like oh that's so badass and you're like I mean I didn't realize that it was badass I just kind of went and did but it I think sometimes um, you because... need a bit of naivety because I think sometimes if you <laughs> I think this all the time like I think sometimes if you actually weighed up all the risks and you properly researched them before you did it you probably wouldn't do it I think sometimes you need a bit of naivety to go and do the big scary thing before you realize it's big and scary yeah I absolutely agree and that was very much how the organization started um both my parents are entrepreneurs so I like starting something wasn't a foreign concept to me that was pretty pretty normal and actually my dad gave me a lecture on not taking enough financial risks within the first year of business which I don't think many parents do so I had a little bit of a wow, yeah. um but I really appreciated their support and um in terms of like logistically setting it up like registering at a company's house and stuff that was all guidance from my dad really because he did all that um and I think having what I would say massively in the charity sector generally um is the the guidance on how to start a charity and how to like not accidentally commit tax fraud and things like that is just non-existent so I have a um multiple friends now that have started their own charities where we all just like it's the blind leading the blind to be honest like we all whatsapp each other going do you know how to do this or like do you know if I need to do something more here or like what paperwork is needed to be filed what do I tell HMRC like how do I do this um so I all think boring admin behind yeah. the boring admin. Yeah. but there's no kind of like flow chart from the government that goes if you want to start a charity you need to do x y and z in like simple language it's all in government lingo where if you're 21 and you're starting an organization, I do not, even now, like eight years into my career, I don't really understand that, like what they're saying in a sentence. Um, so I feel like it's very inaccessible for loads of people. And I was just lucky that I came from a family that does um, kind of run their own stuff. Uh, so that wasn't super foreign for me. Um, and then, yeah, we just kind of grew. I met Pascal, 
who's our community outreach manager within the first year and Andrea, one of our directors. And we just kind of um, started to build things out. Like Pascal built the the community outreach side of what we do. He's from um, the area of Mozambique and my marine bio background and I could build out the research and it was a slow evolution. It definitely wasn't. Um, we don't do, we didn't do everything that we do now. We didn't do from the start. It was like kind of a build projects year on year. Um, and yeah, it was definitely, it didn't look like that previously. Now, now we do quite a lot of different things. Yeah. So growing your organization. So if you're happy to talk about it, what does that look like for anybody that's thinking, you know, I want to start my own organization or, you know, I've got this idea, but I, I don't know what sustainable growth looks like. What did that look like for you? Like, how did you start and where are you now? What was that journey? Not sure. I really know um, <laughs> if we are still sustainably growing now, we just come up with new projects all the time and go, yeah, sure. We can fit that in our schedule. Um, so I would say finances is a huge limiting factor. I think if we just got given millions tomorrow, um, we would be able to employ more people and therefore be able to do more projects and things like that. Um, so that definitely uh, stilted our growth, I would say. Um, I, in, I think when you're young as well, you want stuff to happen now, um, which, to be honest, was a massive win factor for us because we did grow and pivot and we still do a lot quicker than some maybe older organizations and bigger organizations that have more kind of moving parts and stuff. Um, but our team is still only 10 people now. So we're pretty small and we can launch new projects left, right and center as and when they need it. I would say the big fact for us is that we're location-based. So we're not a species-based organization, we're location-based. And that means there's a population that lives in the area. So we were doing what's called needs assessments, which we still do now, we do it every year. And essentially just kind of sit and chat with key community members, talking about what the needs of the community are and what projects they would like to be able to launch. You then kind of put a lens of science on that and look at like what information you need to be able to inform conservation action. Um, you propose them, you bring them to the community, get that community approved. So it's kind of this like um, collaborative process that allows growth. Um, and then you end up launching those projects, which, you know, both parties agree that's a good idea. Um, it's been suggested by someone, whether it's yourself, whether it's a team member, whether that's a community member, it doesn't really matter. Um, and then you have to secure funding for that. And once you get the funding for that, then you can launch the project. So there's a whole process that means that you're not going to launch anything that you don't have uh, finances for or you don't have the resources to do or the community improvement to do. Um, so I think that's uh, been a key element for us to be able to build projects on projects. In my brain, I have a thing where I try and pick one of our projects and bring it up to best practice every year. Um, so we did that with our swimming program. We're doing it with our ocean conservation champion program. Like we have a lot of different programs and I pick one and go like, that's what we're going to do um, this year. Uh, or a staff member picks one or it just comes up naturally. But we try and like bring um we when we initially designed them obviously we designed them at what is best practice at the time but science especially conservation science is so fast moving they give it three years then you need to revamp the project um so yeah so I think that there's that as well just trying to like maintain the projects that you have running and not expand too much that you water down what you're doing um and spread yourself too thinly uh but I think finances is almost not a good thing because I think that there definitely needs to be more money in the sector but 
um, you can't really launch a project if you don't have the money to do so. So that can be a factor that kind of like staggers your growth. And like you said, you're location based and you mentioned earlier that it was kind of you went out to Mozambique in your second year and that kind of inspired you. So how presumably you now live in Mozambique and you've moved your life over there. Like what is that change like for you? And would you ever consider becoming species based and moving or do you like being over there? What's that whole experience working, living abroad like? Um, we wouldn't, we definitely wouldn't become species based. We'll stay location based. Um, I live about six months of my year in each hemisphere, um, which, uh, has its challenges but I actually really love um I get to feet if I stay in a place too long I've always loved traveling um and my partner and I both um also work in like photography and film uh, he's a professional filmmaker so we he has the flexibility to come over to Mars I have I come over to the UK and then we can travel together when we're in the UK as well um and do different kind of like film or photography jobs too on top of like normal work in a PhD it's quite a lot to juggle um but um uh I would say that I really love it I've always been someone that likes to travel to um should we say off the beaten track uh I like going somewhere where you know you're in a very different place uh where the culture is different where the language is different where everything is different about it and you know you're in like a completely different world um and I really love that aspect uh so I've always been someone that likes to travel so this has kind of like aided that and then it's lovely having communities in both countries that you can kind of bounce off and I get different things from each like in the UK I have obviously my family um and I have a friend network here and then in Moz we have I, I obviously have a friend network, my work network, and also um, an incredible wildlife. Not that we don't in the UK, but, you know, it's pretty amazing in tropical waters. So. <laughs> You're quite different, <laughs> I imagine. Yeah. So I think having both has been really lovely for me, and I don't really see myself changing that anytime soon. And I completely forgot you were even doing a PhD. So busy, there's so much going on. I forgot that you mentioned that at the beginning. How is, why did you decide to do a PhD on everything else you're doing? And how do you juggle that and running your organisation? Well, that's definitely something I'm navigating currently. Um, so um, I have always had it in the back of my mind uh but when I finished my master's I was like I'm done with education for a bit like I want to have industry experience build out love the oceans so I definitely um decided that I needed some time to invest in the organization and so I went that route for a while but I did have in the back of my mind like in terms of like scientific integrity and um uh what's it called in terms of um, like respect within the industry and the weight that our organization can carry, having someone with a PhD does aid that. And you can basically publish each chapter of your PhD and we need to publish more papers as an organization anyway. So I was like, okay, well, this seems like it could add up. Um, and then I found my supervisor and a grant that pays me, which is great. Um, and so started kind of designing it and the PhD is very much LTO focused. I'm utilizing our data. Um, the point of it is to inform the legislative backbone to the marine protected area. So, um, 
that means that the data that I publish, I like the co-authors on it will be people from our community and our team. Um, it's something that we can work on together. And because I'm doing it remote and part-time, I can do it from Mozambique and part-time means that I've got longer to do it. I can collect more data, longer data sets, all of that kind of stuff. And because it's so closely related to my work, it, it's quite easy to switch between the two. Um, and I find the PhD work very, very interesting because it's the same as my work work. And then I can use the PhD to inform my work work. Um, so for instance, my literature review, which is the first chapter of my PhD, is on how to design a successful marine protected area, which obviously is incredibly relevant to my work work and being able to review all of these journals, like over a hundred um, different um, papers about what has made a successful or unsuccessful MPA and where MPAs tend to have their downfall. That is incredibly interesting and relevant information for our work. So I'm trying to marry the two together um, so that, yeah, it's slightly more manageable as well. <laughs> so do you have any advice for any women or girls listening that think that they might want to get into the sector about how to do that kind of advice on where to start and Ooh, okay. um I would say getting experience super useful um as much as you can in different areas work out what you do and don't like if you already know you love something then great just get experience in that area um but if you are not sure then get as much experience in different areas as possible um nothing really matches up to experience so try and get that if it's tropical biology then you're going to want to go abroad if you're UK based and get that experience um, I would say in terms of, uh, other advice, resilience, resilience is really key. Try and make out, uh, try and work out what works for you in terms of gaining that resilience. Um, whether it's having friends that will pick you back up, whether it's being able to walk away, um, and take some time to think about it, but you need to be able to get up and continue what you're doing and be able to build strength in that resilience throughout your career as well. Um, I would also say that this sector and starting your own organization generally, and this is blanket statement across all entrepreneurial and freelance people that I've ever spoken to, um, people, and I still do this, really struggle to separate work and personal life and have um, a boundary where you go I'm clocking off for today and that's it um, so working out what your boundaries are and what you're willing to put in I'm definitely someone my family actually is just a family where you like I grew up being told like you'll get what you work for so <clears throat> it means that I've thrown everything 120 percent at everything that I do um, which is great, but it means that you're exhausted and you risk burnout if you do that constantly. So you need to navigate um, what um, kind of feeds you at the same time as where you spend your energy. So yeah, fine. If you want to work 24 hours a day on your project, then that's great. But you can't do that repeatedly for years and years and years without burning out. So you need to work out what will fuel you and what drains you and make sure you have a balance. And I don't mean drain in a negative sense, but it is exertion of energy. So you need to work out where you get your energy from and make sure you get enough of that. So whether that's looking after your health, getting enough sleep, talking and spending time with your friends, your partner, whatever, like make sure that you can strike any kind of work-life balance, um, even if it's 
And generally, when you start your own thing, you'll finish work later and you'll start work earlier than a lot of your friends that are just working for someone else. And that's fine. But as long as you're finishing work before you go to bed and you have something to take your mind off it and completely change the way your brain's working and de-stress you for a little bit. Um, that's really, really important. Um, so building your network and having that support system in place is really important too. And for anybody that might want to start their own organisation or, or company or anything like that, but doesn't have the benefit of two entrepreneurial parents to kind of talk them through everything, do you have any advice about where people should go resources that they can access or people that they could talk to to help yeah I would first of all start off by reaching out to people that run their own things um I would do some research on the internet actually before you reach out so you do have kind of a basic knowledge base on what to do um decide what structure you want to set up so setting up a company or a non-profit is really easy in the UK you just register for 75 quid at company's house and you can do it in two minutes um and you can also check the name of the organization that you want on that system too and check that it hasn't been taken by someone else which is pretty important when you're thinking about like your branding and things like that after that if you want to set up a charity it's a slightly more complicated process I'd reach out to people that have, are smaller organizations. Don't reach out to like the CEO of Oxfam. Um, reach out to small organizations that run their own thing. And that person might have some time to talk to you about the process of setting up a charity, might have a network of their own where people discuss this kind of thing. Um, there's also Facebook groups for this kind of thing um, where there is kind of admin charity Facebook groups where people post like I'm part of a fundraising chat where people just post stuff about fundraising um, and that's a lot of like admin things so that can be a really really useful resource too. Um, I would say that building an advisory board if you're still at university great um, keep friends in each profession so keep a friend that is an accountant keep a friend that's a lawyer keep a friend that's a graphic designer keep a friend that's a social media manager um, all of these skill sets that you don't have that's really important um, and I would advise building an advisory board which is something that um, we constantly look at and I'm actually doing this year um, but an advisory board should be filled with people that that have a different skill set to what yours is and they can help guide um, different projects that you run it doesn't need to have legal standing um, it can just be literally an advisory board where there's lots of different people that put in their input and you have to have like quarterly meetings with them. So four meetings a year and you prepare a little information on what that meeting is going to be about and where the organization is at that point. And then you provide a minutes right up after that where you talk about what happened and what actions were agreed. Um, but those kind of people, um, having them in arms reach to be able to shoot them an email and go, I don't really understand the process on this. Can you explain it a little bit more? Then that's really invaluable as well. So I'd have that too um and then try and get yourself a mentor or something like that I I didn't really have that I would say um Andrea our director was the closest thing I got to that um but having someone that you can knock on the door of informally and say can you explain this a bit to me because I don't really understand this um that can be really useful and someone that kind of is your cheerleader I would say is is pretty important that can also come from a personal life as well and having a good support system around you but if your friends work in different sectors they often won't get won't get it so having someone that works in your sector 
is um and as your cheerleader is really useful and you can also go together at networking events and things like that which is always lovely to have a friend there um in terms of networking I would say if I'm at a networking drinks I'll have a little bit of Dutch courage I'll neck a glass of wine and then channel um what I call old white man energy so look around the room and pick out um the people that look like they feel entitled to be there and they are they know their stuff um and you'll usually be able to spot them generally speaking in the marine sector or conservation sector it will be old white men and usually in a group of like two or three and they'll be old and you can kind of spot them a mile off those are probably the people who make decisions on money and important things like that uh whether you need a bit of dutch courage or whether you can just get your brain in that mode of like nothing's going to stop me go plonk yourself in the middle of that conversation and see what you can learn from it um you can make some useful connections um and things like that so it's definitely worth doing that um and going to those networking events because that can be a way to build your network as well and meet people who you want to put on your advisory board and things like that too I would 100% echo, even from a, not from an organisation setting up point of view, but just in life, <laughs> I would echo that advice to keep a lawyer friend and keep an accountant slash finance friend, because it is endlessly helpful. Even if they don't work in a specific thing that you need, they will know someone that is. I can't tell you the amount of times that I've pinged something to a friend about a pension. I've been like, I don't really understand this. And they're like, I don't either, but I work with this person or I know this person and they'll come back to you and then they've sorted everything for me. So yeah, it's a really boring piece of advice, but it's so useful. So useful. It's a good life hack. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. Oh, Francesca, it's been so amazing to chat to you. It's so interesting. If people want to go and find out more about your organisation and get involved or find out about opportunities where can they find you so um they can visit our website which is just lovetheoceans.org or they can follow us on social media um we'll actually be recruiting for jobs soon so people can look out there and we also have expeditions that we run to mozambique to give young scientists experience in field biology so if you do want experience then you can check that out there um and yeah pretty much everything's on our website or on our socials so that's probably a good place to start Great. I will link the socials and the website into the show notes. So if you're listening and you want to go and check out Love the Oceans, you can do that. And I'm sure, is there a way that people can donate? Even if they're not a marine biologist, they want to get involved, they can donate money. Um, We have a donation page on our website and you can also adopt a whale shark or adopt a turtle nest if you want to get a little badge of honour and a certificate. But I always, when when you say shark, I always just think of your traditional great white. I'm sure like a lot of people. And I don't, yeah, I think of a whale shark as more of a whale than a shark. Definitely a shark. Know. Don't get that one wrong. Nice. I think it was finding, you know, no. finding Dory got <laughs> it wrong. And the whale shark started making whale sounds. And all the biologists um, I was with was like, no, this is an unbelievable movie now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favourite type of shark? Um, I think my favourite is probably a scalloped hammerhead. Um well we have a running theory that our area is a nursery for scalloped hammerheads um and unfortunately i've seen a lot dead in the fisheries and not many alive so they're kind of my mystery like animal that i search for <laughs> um so whether that's like we do some baited remote underwater videos we also do like um yeah a bunch of different research and they always I don't know they're just a bit mystic to me they're critically endangered and their population isn't doing so great so it's quite rare to see them 
and yeah they're just my like thing that I always want to see and never see yeah yeah I love that well thank you so much for coming on to the podcast hopefully this has inspired some people to get more involved and find out some more things like I said we'll pop links to things in the show notes so you can go find out more stuff there and good luck with, with your PhD and everything else that you're doing thank you for having me thanks very much